How many of you, as we go into our, our time of studying God's Word, how many of you have ever seen the show American Pickers? It's kind of an interesting show. Uh, I guess that's going to be the way I choose to describe it. Um, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, um, basically the, the show is two guys that travel around the country, and they invade people's barns and various buildings and I guess the way I would describe it is they pick through people's junk. But here's the thing. They always negotiate a fair price. But sometimes, I mean, the, the few times I've watched it, I think, on Hulu, I'm like, why in the world, A, can this be a job? B, why in the world would you want to get some of the stuff that they're getting? And the reason is this. They see value where other people see junk. They see it not in its current rusted and messed up state, but in its restored state. When it's polished and it's, it's returned to that, that splendor of when it was first created. And that got me to thinking about how does God view us? You know, from the moment that we surrender to his grace and we become his children, how does God view us? You know, when, when God finds us, we're a wreck. Sin has completely messed up our lives. It continues to mess up our, our lives, but does God see us in our sin? Well, Scripture would say no. That rather what God sees isn't us as we are, but as He is going to make us. He sees us in that redeemed, restored place that only He is going to create in us. Because God knows what he created us for. He knows how we are going to bring him glory and honor that he is due. In fact, the one big thing this morning is going to be this, that God has saved us and he is making us new for a purpose. All right? I want to invite you to go ahead, grab your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 together. What I want you to know is something we already said. God did not save us to sit sour and soak. We were saved for a purpose, okay? The very fact that we are still here means there is a purpose for our lives. So let's see what this purpose is. I'm going to start in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, begin in verse 11, and I'm going to ask if you would, let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word together. It says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, 
We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in the heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, all uh, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who have reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and have given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To it that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he had made him to be sin who, for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray again. Father, again, we just praise you and thank you for your word. Lord, there's a lot in this passage. But you've given us your Holy Spirit to teach. And so, Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way. And rather, I pray that we would all have ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth that you're going to teach us in this passage and then, Lord, may we worship you by being obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. God has saved us and is making us new for a purpose. Now, what we're going to do uh, of this text is what we essentially do every week. And that's, we're going to ask some questions of it. And we're just going to allow the text to speak for itself. Three questions that we want to ask this morning. The first one is this. Why do we need to be made new in the first place? Uh, this message is entitled, God is Making Us New. So why do we need to be made new? The text and all of Scripture would answer it in one word, sin. See, if you go all the way back to Genesis, you see God has created everything. He looks out and he says, behold, everything is very good. So everything is perfect in its original creation. Along comes Satan to tempt Adam and Eve. They doubt God's word, and they introduce sin into the world. And from that moment, everything that we see begins to change. The world that was is now gone to the world that you and I now see. In fact, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, famine, disease, death, all the things that are part of our life, are evidence of the truthfulness of the Genesis account. Because God said, if you rebel against me, if you choose to sin, then this is what's going to happen. So literally, we are experiencing the consequences of our own decisions. And so we, we see all of this. And so Paul begins in verse 11 here, and he is connecting what he is going to say with what he just said in verse 10. Okay, he, now what did he say in verse 10? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. So Paul's argument is this. In light of the coming judgment, in light of the fact that every person is going to stand before God one day and give an account for their life, in light of that, you need to be ready. Okay, verse 10 is judgment's coming. Verse 11 is you better be ready. All right, that's why he says we persuade men. Paul understood this. He couldn't save anybody. He couldn't even save himself. But he wanted to persuade those that he come in contact with to tell them about who God is and the gospel and the hope that is there. Because we are born with this sin nature, because we are sinners by birth and by choice, in a fallen condition, there's nothing we can do to bring glory to God. You know, even when we do good things, if you don't have a relationship with God, it pales in comparison to the vileness of our sin against God. That's why Isaiah said that all of our righteousness is but filthy rags. He was talking about a nation, the, the nation of Israel who knew God, who had received the law from God, but they were going through the motions. They, they were just going to church, okay? It's, it's the way we would think of it. They were just kind of going to church and doing the right things, but their heart wasn't in it. They wanted what God could give them, not how could they worship and glorify God. And I kind of wonder, if we're just being honest, how often are we guilty of that? And how, how many times have we ever just come into church because, well, it's Sunday, that's what I'm supposed to do. How many times have, have we sung the songs because we know them, but they just didn't really penetrate our heart. They just, he was just going through the motions. See, this, this is the danger when we accept an organized religion over a genuine relationship with Jesus. See, a religion says, if you do, then God will be pleased and happy and he'll do this for you. Okay, if the only reason that we come and do what we do on Sundays or, or whatever day that, that you're worshiping is to get something from God, then we don't really understand what it's about. See, God doesn't need me. God doesn't need what I do. He desires my heart and my life to be surrendered to him. When I surrender my life to him, when you surrender your life to him, he is glorified because he is doing what only God can do. Now see, this is the opposite message that you know, we constantly hear in the world. We hear things such as, well, he's got a good heart. Or, you know, she's basically a good person. Now we want to believe those things. Okay, because they make sense to us. But scripture would paint a very different picture. Scripture would paint the picture that apart from Christ, we have nothing and we are nothing. See, one thing I, I want my children and the children and the youth and even adults here to get is this. Your value, your worth, your identity is not in who you are. It is not in what you do. It is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's your value, that's your worth, that's your identity. You know, the world wants to beat, beat us up and say, well, you're worthless because you don't look like this or you don't do all of that stuff. 
And, and God is saying, no, no, you are infinitely, eternally valuable to me. And I proved it because my son died in your place. That's our value. That's our identity. And we've got to learn to let go of how the world defines us. Because our greatest enemy is not outside of us. Our greatest enemy is inside of us. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 would answer it this way. My greatest enemy is the inner me. Yeah, I mean, if, if we look at it, he asks questions. Where do all these wars and fightings come from? They come from our sinful desires. We want to do things and to have things, and we don't care what lengths we have to go to do it, so we're our own worst enemy. And we often focus on the external things in life. We go, oh, well, they got to be a good Christian because look at everything they do. You know, that, that's, and all of the, these judgments that we're making, yet Jesus would condemn the Pharisees, the religious leaders, half the religious leaders in his day, Matthew 23. He compared them to two things. He said, you are like a, a dirty cup. He said, oh, you're nice and washed on the outside, inside you're dirty. Then he immediately turns around and says, you are a washed tomb. You're beautiful on the outside. Inside you are full of dead men's bones. Jesus was condemning their religious hypocrisy. They had morality without a relationship. They, they lived by that uh, saying, you know, I don't smoke or chew or go with those who do. And Jesus goes, do you really think I'm going to die to make you a moral person? I'm going to die because there's no other way that you could be made right with me. Paul has this same idea uh, of how we are defiled on the inside there in chapter 6, verse 1. But he's got a different uh, audience in mind. So chapter 6, verse 1 says, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. What in the world is he talking about? Don't receive the grace of God in vain. He's saying it's possible for you to know the truth. It's possible for you to tell others about the truth. But it's possible for you not to live the truth. You know, we titled this entire series, Examine Yourself. It's based on 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says, but examine yourself to see if you're in faith or not. One thing that I think as professing Christians we have to do is we must examine our heart and our life to see if our life is matching up with our words. I mean, let's just be really honest. It's very easy in the American society to say that we're a Christian. There is no threat from government agency or any other foreign entity of us coming in to worship on a Sunday or any other day. But the question is, are we claiming to be a Christian because we're not Muslim or because we're not Buddhist or, or Taoist or, or whatever? Are we claiming to be a Christian because we realize our sin and the sacrifice of Christ as the only way to be saved. You know, one of the most terrifying passages in all the New Testament is Jesus. He's, he's primarily talking to his disciples, but he's teaching a big crowd. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. It says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
He goes on to say, not everybody who, who says to me, you know, Lord, did we not you know, prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do all these miraculous works in your name? Notice their basis for salvation was what they did. I did this. I did that. But the conclusion of that passage is Jesus saying, and I will look at them and say, depart from me, you cursed for I never knew you. It's possible to know all of the religious things. It's possible to go through all of the motions and not be a born-again child of God. Those people that Jesus is talking about, they would go to church just like we do. They would sing the same songs that we do. They would read the same Bible that we do. The difference is they were trusting in themselves to get to heaven and not Christ. So that would be the question I would ask you. If you claim to be a Christian, what is the basis of that claim? Is it what you do or is it what Jesus did? So that's why we have to be made new, sin. Which leads to the next logical question. That question is this, how are we made new? How does God make us new? Chapter 5, verse 19, Paul uses a word, uh, they are reconciling it and reconciliation. Now, a lot of people in the 830 service, this made sense too. I'm a little worried about this, this service. Um, how many of you still get a paper statement from your bank? All right, so we're off to a good start. How many of you keep a checkbook and write down every little transaction you do? Okay, that's what I thought. This was going to terribly fall off. All right, just... Hang with me here. Because most of the time, the work of reconciliation that we do with our bank is at 5 a.m., my bank says, hey, this is your balance. I'm like, okay. But, <laughs> right? Have you ever noticed, like, for those of you that get the paper statements in the checkbook, have you ever noticed the bank always says you have less money than you say you have? Another sermon, another Sunday. Anyway. But the work of reconciliation is bringing into agreement two opposing parties. And so what your parents did is every month they'd get this paper statement and they'd open it and they'd have their checkbook open and they'd look, all right, the bank says, I, I deducted this much. Okay, yeah, I wrote that. And they would go down until their checkbook agreed with the bank statement. That's the process of reconciliation. It's an accounting term. Well, spiritually speaking, you and I, our sin creates a debt. And God and mankind are opposing parties because of our sin. God is holy. He is pure. And we're not. And so, we've got this sin debt. And that's bad. The worst part is there's nothing you and I can do to reconcile that account on our own. There had to be some form of reconciliation. Well, that form of reconciliation was Jesus. Him coming to the earth, being the sinless son of God, we're going to see it in verse 21, and him dying in our place. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that reconciles sinful man to a holy God. When we surrender in faith to God's grace, that payment of Jesus' blood is applied to our account. And at that very moment, it is rendered now and forever that our account is paid in full. Oh man, y'all must have put in the spot right there. Our account is paid in full. 
What does that mean? That means this, that every sin, past, present, and even future that you and I do, when we have surrendered to the grace of God, it has been dealt with by Jesus. That my sin account that is astronomical has been wiped out by the blood of Jesus. And nothing will ever change that. There's nothing you can do. There's no sin that you can commit that God goes, you know what, I loved you up until you did that point, now I'm done with you. There's no point in which our sin can out-sin the grace of God. As long as we've come in faith to Him. See, the flip side of that is this. If we have not surrendered to God's grace and faith, there's not enough good we can do to offset the sin against God. So how does God do all of this? Well, we're going to begin in verse 21 of chapter 5. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon called this verse the great exchange. He says, for he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Literally, at that moment of Jesus going on the cross, being nailed and lifted there outside of Jerusalem, Jesus literally embodied and became every sin you and I have ever committed. And not just ours, but the sin of the whole world. Now look at that next phrase. Who knew no sin. Jesus never paid for a sin he committed because he didn't sin. You know, in the gospel accounts, it records about three hours into the crucifixion that it became pitch black. Now, it's the middle of the day, but it became pitch black. And, and out of that darkness comes this piercing scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in this moment that Jesus experienced something that he had never before or ever again will experience. He didn't have a perfect relationship with God the Father. What was so powerful to separate Jesus from his dad? Our sin. In that moment, the Father had to judge sin. And it was his son that was sin. Not for a thing he has ever done, but for everything you and I and the whole world has ever done. And, and listen, I mean, that's, that's bad for us, all right? But listen to it. I mean, it actually gets worse if you think about it. Because it says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So not only did we cause the painful separation of Jesus from his father because of our sin, but in turn, we also were given, through no good deed of our own, a right standing with God. This was the penalty and the price that Christ paid. That he would be separated, even momentarily, from his father so that you and I could be brought near. So this is why, church, that we've got to understand that sin is sin. We have to understand the seriousness of sin. We may not think it's a big deal. To Jesus, it was huge. It cost him his life. 
not only did Jesus make us right with God, but listen to what he then does. Back it up to verse 17. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, that is, if you surrender to the grace of God, okay, you've been saved. He is a new creature. Jesus didn't die to make you uh, you 2.0. All right, he didn't die to make you a better you. He died to make you a new you. Okay, now he, he goes on. He, he says, the old things that are passed away, that is, they're dead, they're buried. Our old way of life ought to be passed away. It ought to be dead and buried. Behold, all things come new. God not only deals with our sin, but then he begins to transform us into the image of Christ. How does he do it? Well, it's answered in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter uh, 36, verses 25 and 26 say this. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And a new heart also I will give to you. And a new spirit will I put within you. See, God said when you acknowledge your sin and you turn in faith to Jesus, that he wipes out all your sin. Psalm 103, 12 would say, is this cast as far as the east is from the west. He cleanses from all our filthiness and all of our idols. And he says, I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna put a new spirit in you. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us. And the, the purpose of the spirit is twofold. First, it is proof that we belong to God. You remember last week, we were talking about where Paul says that the Spirit is an earnest there in chapter 5, verse 5, that the Spirit's an engagement ring or a down payment on what God's going to promise to do later. So it is proof that we belong to God. But the other part of the Spirit being placed in us is to transform us and to make us like God. It means that as I become a, a child of God and He begins His work in me, He's going to change my words. He's going to change my actions, and he's going to change my thoughts. Back to matter, let's go ahead and just put this out in the open. If you say that you have come to Jesus and he has not changed your life, you are worshiping a false idol. You're worshiping yourself. You're worshiping your idea of God instead of the reality of who God is. Because it's impossible for you and I to have an actual encounter with God and not be changed. Now, is it going to be an overnight process? No, whoever told you that lied to you, okay? It's going, to, it's going to be a lifelong process of God changing us. And some days you're going to get it right, and other days, man, you are going to mess it up. And here's the good thing. God's love does not depend on you getting it right or wrong. His love for you depends on who he is. I want you to always, always, always remember this. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. He loves because that is who he is. Doesn't excuse our sin, but it doesn't remove his love. And so the Spirit comes to live inside of us. He begins to change us. He makes us like Christ. That's what it says in Romans 8, verse 29. You know, the amazing thing about Romans 8, 28, man, so many people know it. Romans 8, 28 reminds us that God can take the difficult things in our life 
and he can use those for his glory and our good to transform us into verse 29 to be like him. God's not wasting your pain right now. That circumstance that you're finding yourself in, understand that a sovereign, all-knowing, loving God is going to use that for his glory and ultimately for your good. You've got to trust him. We have to know that he knows what he is doing. And as we're transformed, we go from a spirit that wants to please ourselves to a spirit that seeks to love God, glorify God, and to serve God. And he begins with our heart. And from, as he gives us a new heart, he changes our mind. And so when my desires are changed, then my thoughts and attitudes are changed. And when my heart, when my desires and my thoughts and attitudes are changed, guess what naturally changes? My actions. This is what God does. And it begins in our heart. That's how he makes us new, through the blood of Christ and the Spirit transforming us. Which then leads us to the third and final question to ask this morning. And that is this. What is God's purpose in doing all this? What, what's the reasoning behind what God is doing? See, from the moment God saves us, he begins to change us. I love how uh, Pastor Paul David Tripp answers the why. He says, quote, God ordered the events of human history so that at just the right time, Jesus would come, live the life that we could not live, die the death that we should have died, and rise again to defeat sin and death. He did this so that the bondage to sin could be broken. You don't have to live as a prisoner of that sin. Jesus' death on that cross paid the penalty of it, but it also broke the power of sin in your life. When you and I choose to trust Christ and we continue to grow, he breaks those strongholds that are there. I've seen marriages that were on the brink of divorce when they get on the same page in a relationship with Christ. I've seen him put them back together so strong it, you would never even believe that they were in trouble in the first place. I've seen God repair families. I've seen him take fall-down drunks, drug addicts, you name it. I've seen the power of the gospel and the love of God transform them in ways that would blow our minds. This is the power of the gospel, that he can take what's dead and no value, and he can give it life. And he can give it value. But he didn't die just to pay the penalty or break the power. He saved you with a purpose. That purpose is to glorify him. The highest way that you and I can glorify God is to tell others about God. See, every one of you, you don't have to have a Bible degree. You don't have to have a master's or a PhD to be able to be used by God. If you've genuinely been saved, then God's given you a story. Tell that story. Where did God find you? How did he reveal that you needed him? And what is he doing in your life now? Three minutes of you loving God and loving somebody else near you, enough just to share that, could change their eternity. That's why you're saved. God saved you with a purpose. 
He's got a plan for us. We have to learn to see everyday opportunities as ministry opportunities. You've heard me say this over and over, four weeks now. Every member is a minister and a missionary. If you have been saved, you are to bring the daily sacrifices of praise to God and to submit your life to God. You are to also be a missionary. What does that mean? That means wherever you go to work tomorrow, or tomorrow's Labor Day, so wherever you go to work on Tuesday, that's a mission field. There are people who are far from God that he wants to use you to bring near to him. When you go to that that cookout tomorrow or you go to a ball field this week or, or whatever, understand that God has placed you in that place and he is placing people around you who are in the exact place you used to be so that you can share what he's done for you. That's what he gets at in verse 20. Paul uses the word ambassador. See, an ambassador has no authority of their own. The only authority that an ambassador has is what's given to him. All right, we as the United States, we have many ambassadors uh, to various foreign countries. That ambassador does not have the right or authority to negotiate on behalf of the United States however they want to. They've not been given that authority. Their authority comes from the Secretary of State and ultimately from the President of the United States. They represent them to the world. All right, so apply that very definition to what Paul says about us. We are ambassadors for Christ. The authority is in Jesus. That's why, you know, you've heard the Great Commission. Matthew 28, we always read 19 and 20. Back it up a verse, verse 18. Jesus starts off by saying this, all authority has been given to me, heaven and in earth. Because I've got all authority, I am telling you, go make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. That's the authority we have to make disciples, to preach the gospel, to baptize, and to teach. That's it. That's the end and extent of our authority to represent Christ. And the good news is we don't do it alone. Chapter 6, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, again, it says, we then as workers together with him. God has not called you to a task and then said, go do it on your own. The task that he has called you to, he has equipped you to do, and he is going with you to do it. You don't have to have the right words. What you have to do is trust that God's placed you in this time and place in front of this person for a reason. Dr. Mount of Scripture says, don't give thought to what you're going to say. In that very hour, the Spirit will give you the words to say. So let's just ask a few questions as we're wrapping up. Has God made you new? Has there been a time in which you have recognized you're a sinner? But then that realization came that Jesus died for your sin and that he wants a relationship with you. Has there been that moment in which you have surrendered your heart to him? If not, that's why you're here and that's where we start. For those that have surrendered their heart to Christ, we have to then ask this question. How are we representing God to the world? If people were to listen to the words we say and the things that we do, would they see Jesus in us? Not can you save them, 
Are you pointing them to the one that can? And if not, what change do you need to make today? What do you need to confess before God that needs to get out of your life so that people can see him clearly? Because we don't want people on their way to Jesus to be tripping over us as Christians. We don't want to be that stumbling block. Do you need to come to him? Or do you need to be representing him more faithfully? Whatever it is, let's respond. Let's worship God in what we're about to do. So if you would stand as we're going to pray together. Father, as we continue just to move through this worship service, we count it a joy just to be able to come into worship, to be able to sing, to be able to hear your word. But Lord, now is really the time of worship. Because worship is a verb, something we do. What we have done for the most part for the last hour is sit back and be passive. And it serves a purpose. The words of the song that songs that we sing remind us of who you are and focus us. They prepare our hearts to hear from you. And then we open your word and we allow your spirit to teach us. But now comes our response. What have you said? What are you calling us to do? Are there those who need to trust you as Savior today? Are those Christians who are just tripping up a lot? Maybe causing others to trip up. And they just need to confess and seek your help. Lord, whatever it is, let us do it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're standing, we're going to sing one more song just as I am I come broken the altar is going to be open I'll be up here if you need to pray if there's a way that we can help you let's respond